IB Talk, the global insurance industry podcast presented by Insurance Business. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first ever edition of IB Talk, a brand new podcast brought to you by Insurance Business that focuses on the leading names in the insurance industry globally. Over the weeks and months to come, we'll be interviewing some of the top figures in the global insurance industry across our markets of the UK, USA, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and Asia, and getting to know them on a deeper level, from how they have risen the ranks in their careers, to the industry issues that matter to them, to what they enjoy in their rare time off the clock. So let us be a distraction for you amid all the upheaval of COVID-19. I'm Paul Lucas, the Managing Editor of Insurance Business Worldwide, and with some extensive research, I've discovered a fascinating fact. Having looked at the top 10 most listened to podcasts around the world on Apple, Spotify, and even iTunes, there are currently no insurance podcasts on that list. Uh, A shocking statistic, I'm sure you'll agree, one that we intend to put right. But to do that, we need great guests, which is why for our first IB Talk, I've reached out to this man. He is the Global Director of Media Relations at Marsh, Jason Groves. Jason, welcome to IB Talk. Uh, Paul, it's great to be talking to you and very honoured I am to be your first guest. We're honoured to have you. Uh, Jason, uh, you are, of course, based in London, and I think it's fair to say have a fairly British accent. So some people might be surprised to learn about your Australian roots. Uh, You were born in Australia and grew up there. Is that right? Uh, My accent becomes more Australian if we're doing well at cricket or rugby, Paul. Uh, (laughs) I grew up in Sydney, um, uh, a child, very much a child of the 80s and moved here in the late 90s, about 22 years ago. So how do the two countries compare? Uh, I think it's fairly safe to say that, you know, a lot of Australians feel very at home when they come to the UK. It's a very, um, it's very familiar. It's quite, it's quite different in, in some ways. We've inherited in Australia a very American culture uh, in some ways. But the, the basics of um, the kind of sports that we enjoy, our senses of humour, I think, um, uh, our approach to life, um, our willingness to try things out, I think are all very similar. And, uh, you know, I felt incredibly at home as soon as I arrived in London. Um, you know, I try and get back to Australia uh, at least once a year. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's why so many Australians come here. I think there's always been a great, uh, a great rivalry, but also a great friendship between our two countries. So after all this time, then, do you consider yourself now more an Australian or more a Brit? <laughs> well, uh, certainly when it comes to sport, I'm still very much uh, I'm still very much an Australian, and, and certainly if I'm talking to my family, uh, uh, Australia is always home. But uh, certainly, uh, you know, my partner is British. Um, I have a lot of British friends. I'm involved in in many things over here. Um, uh, you know, I, I I really it's difficult to choose. Um, you know, this is my adopted home, um, but I still feel a great affinity for the country of my birth. So your background is is actually in in journalism. Uh, you were even a, a press officer for the Conservative Party at one point. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your sort of you know your early start in your career and and what led you into the world of insurance? Uh, well, so my my early background in Australia, I was very much involved in um, in politics there. So uh, that that was really my first introduction and. Um, Australia has a reputation, I think, for being, you know, a very open country, a sort of very, uh, you know, um, sort of, uh, you know, open to new ideas and sort of pretty laid back. Um, but actually, it, it was a, it's a fairly conservative society and still was in the 1980s. 
Uh, and being involved in politics, which was my first love, um, uh, you know, really that battle for uh, ideas, um, it was somewhere where you, you, you learned to sort of um, play a particular kind of a game. Um, and then moving to the UK and, and uh, was really, uh, it, it was really I decided that before I got a serious job in Australia, I wanted to travel and see the world a bit more. Uh, my father, who'd lived here in the early 50s, just out of school, um, made a prophetic prediction when he um, farewelled me at the airport. And, uh, and I said, Dad, you know, I'll be back in a year. And he said, oh, if you get a good job, uh, you'll never come back. Um, and and he was right. I was at a, a dinner party in Islington bewailing my lack of employment with some friends. And uh, one of them said that they'd just left the Financial Times to set up a new uh, a new trade publication about insurance and they needed a deputy editor. Uh, and I knew absolutely nothing about insurance at the time, uh, but uh, I, you know, I was lucky enough to have a very good tutor in Graham Buck, um, a journalist who'd been around for a long time and still still writing articles um, around the place. Uh, and he really sort of in, introduced me to the industry and I was just um, bowled over by the breadth of what it did, the kind of things it got into, uh, and I was fascinated. And uh, you know, I remember remember in 1999 writing articles about um, alternative risk transfer, you know, stuff I really didn't understand that well. But you know, looking at so many different aspects, um, uh, one of the things that struck me was the insurance industry wasn't really very good. As someone came from someone who'd come from a political background. Um, and which was all about storytelling, about creating narratives that people could get on board with that would really energize them and cause them to change their mind or, or change their way of um, change their behavior. To come into the insurance industry, to see an industry that was doing such interesting things, but was really not very good at telling its story. Um, and I guess, you know, for the last 20 or so years, um, helping the insurance industry tell their story to a wider range of people, I guess, has been my great, you know, uh, my great career passion. And I like to think that in journalism, uh, I was able to do that. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I uh, became the editor of a reinsurance magazine, uh, which was incredibly interesting. And, you know, trying to prize uh, stories out of people that were really doing interesting things, but had never spoken about what they've, um, what they've done publicly, uh, you know, was something that I found really, really interesting in my career, in my journalism career. That's excellent. And you talked about, you know, sort of trying to, to, to make a change in the insurance industry. And I guess that's something that you've continued now, because I mentioned earlier your job title at Marsh, but you've got a very a, another very significant role in the industry, and that's as the chairman of the Diving Festival. Um, I, I'm sure most of our listeners are very familiar with the event, but for those who may not be, um, so Diving is a global festival of events aimed at promoting greater diversity and inclusion in the sector. I believe in 2019, it was in 32 countries with 120 events it's become huge hasn't it yeah it's really had I, I think a measurable impact on the on the culture uh, of the industry you know um, you talk about growing up in Australia uh, uh, and Australia is, is some way behind um, I, I had a not uh, uh, untypical education in that I went to a an all-male private rugby obsessed school um, so when I came into the insurance industry I felt very much at home um, but that, that wasn't necessarily a healthy thing. And, you know, I, there, there was a, um, a real need, I think, to bring in some fresh thinking. Um, one of the things that I observed as a journalist that, um, that 
once a good idea was 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 um, proposed by someone in the industry that people would often get in line and and follow with a bit of a herd mentality. And uh, I was always struck by um, that sometimes there seemed to lack um, courageous individual thinking, doing things a little bit differently. Uh, and I think part of that is, you know, part of that is um, hiring people who are from similar backgrounds, similar outlooks, um, and actually what we need is an industry. You know, I think particularly since the financial crisis that when the whole issue of operational risk is so much more front and centre for boards all around the world that we actually need as an industry, I think, to step up to the plate with innovation, with new ideas of different ways of looking at risk. And you mentioned COVID-19, you know, how do we um, how do we address these big uh, issues that can, you know, come on very suddenly uh, and completely change the way that people work and people do business and have profound impacts uh, on on companies and their long term health. You know, how can we as an industry um, ensure that we're uh, making products, having ideas that can really help our clients through these kinds of issues? And you know, the best way that we can do that is having a diversity of thought. So my. I've had a real passion about, um, you know, bringing people in, making sure that they feel comfortable and able to contribute all of the great ideas that they have um, for a very long time. Um, and, you know, the Diving Festival, I think, you know, to see it in 32 countries, places like Bangladesh and Saudi Arabia, um, you know, Nigeria last year, uh, you know, when you see pictures of that and people being told that, you know, no matter your background, you can have really great careers in our industry, um, I think is incredibly heartening. And, um, you know, I, I've been able recently to talk at the uh, British Chambers of Commerce annual conference, you know, saying uh, that lots of industries could do with a dive-in festival. And it was um, really heartening to hear the positive response I had to that as well. You know, it's a what a wonderful thing that the insurance industry is uh, taking a lead um, in, in showing the way for others uh, ha- on how to promote um, greater diversity and inclusion. I, I totally agree. It's a, it is a fantastic initiative, but like you said, uh, maybe the industry at times is a little bit slow to adapt. So if we could turn the clock back a little bit, tell me what were those initial discussions w- were like and you know how the festival sort of came about? How did you sort of get this started? Well, it came about when... Um, so... Uh, Inga Beale and I have known each other for a long time. When I was a journalist, uh, I I did the first ever profile interview of her. Someone told me, um, uh, you should really speak to this person who's heading up an an alternative risk transfer group at a reinsurer in Germany. And I said, I was quite intrigued. And I spoke to her and she was incredibly dynamic um, back then. And we'd stayed in touch. And she she got in touch. This was an uh, idea of inclusion at Lloyd's. uh, and she phoned me and said, look, we want to have a, a series of events over three days. Um, would you be willing to get together a group of people from the communications, uh, we work in communications across the industry, um, give it a personality, give it a name and help promote it? Um, and I sort of grasped onto that with, with both hands. Um, I guess part of it and, you know, uh, you know something else to, to talk about that really gave me a, a passion for this, Paul, that, you know, might be of interest is, you know, um, as a, as a gay guy in the insurance industry, um, uh, it's not the industry hasn't always felt particularly welcoming of that. Um, you know, it's difficult in London to understand that now. With um, 
you know, with things like Link, which is the cross-sector LGBT network. Um, but when I certainly when I started in the industry, there were there were absolutely no LGBT role models. Um, I wasn't really aware of anyone in the industry who was openly LGBT. Um, there was one um, senior person who I used to lunch with regularly, and um, he probably thought I was, and I probably thought he was, but we never talked about it um, <laughs> because there was a certain nervousness. And many years later, I met his boyfriend, and he met mine. Um, but uh, you know, I mean, that was the culture of the industry, and I, I um, you know, I'm a fairly strong sort of a person, but. You know, it does take a lot of effort when you have to remember, oh, I'm out to such and such, but not out to that other person, uh, you know, trying to keep a mental tally of, um, uh, you know, of who you who you feel comfortable talking about yourself with. Um, and I just thought this is not a healthy culture for, for an entire industry. Um, and so it was, you know, that was, you know, to have an official sanction like Lloyd say, actually, we really want to talk about these issues to talk about why aren't there enough women in leadership roles, you know, why, you know, how can how can people who are LGBT bring more of themselves to work, you know, to talk about mental health and that, you know, it's okay not to be okay, um, you know, and you know, trying to make sure that we get people from you know black and minority ethnic backgrounds working in the insurance industry, um, you know, it's, it's since expanded to cover a whole range of other sort of areas, um, which I think have really resonated with people. You know, we've talked more about disability um, in, in recent years, and I'm always struck when, you know, you know, I talk to someone in the industry that they'll mention, well, actually, I've got a son or a daughter or I've got a family friend um, who's got a particular disability or has autism. And, you know, this really, um, I, I think it's been such a success because it, it really speaks to so many people, even if not personally, to um, a circumstance in their private life and something that they would never have thought about talk, talking about in the workplace. Suddenly, well, actually, they can talk about the fact that they've you know, got difficult circumstances at home or you know, they're a carer or they're, they're helping to support someone. And actually, the experiences that they learn from that person actually that is helpful for them to bring into the workplace. So Dive In was born initially as a series of events in London, um, and and this year is the sixth anniversary in London. But you know, very quickly, people in Sydney, in Singapore, in Hong Kong, and New York, and other places heard about it and said, "Well, you know, we'd like to be part of Dive In." Um, as as well as you know, originally it was also just for companies that had business at Lloyd's, um, and so we expanded across the London market and across the UK. And so in the second year, I think we were in um, seven or eight countries. Um, which felt like a huge, uh, huge expansion. But you know, uh, um, and so in in several of in, you know in several of those countries this year, celebrating their fifth anniversary of dive in. Um, uh, I, I think in very few instances has a city or a country hosted an event and then not gone on to host subsequent events. So you know, it, what's really gratifying is that as we've expanded into these thirty-two countries around the world, uh, that people really see the value of it and. Uh, have kept going with dive in and so sort of said actually we need to we need to push further on this issue so um, you know so many people see seeing the value of that is, is I think something where I really get a huge amount of satis satisfaction out of so you said uh, that um, you were out to some people and, and not out to others is that because certainly at that time you felt as though those other people would have responded negatively to you oh yeah absolutely they would have had um, and it, I think some of it might have been my um, 
my cautiousness. Um, some of it, I, uh, I, I genuinely think um, uh, they would have thought less of me. And, uh, you know, in some circumstances, maybe my career or access would have been impeded. Um, uh, you know, I, I think there were some pretty old fashioned attitudes in the industry. Um, and maybe some of the, maybe the caution in certain, certain circumstances wasn't justified, but in others, I think it absolutely was. Uh, and that's where I think we've seen a significant change. I'm not saying that um, we've managed to snuff out homophobia in the insurance industry. I'm, I'm sure it's far from that. Um, but I think, um, you know, open overt homophobia has become a lot less acceptable than, you know, even the time I've been in the industry. Um, you know, I'd like to think if people, uh, you know, uh, made public some of the views that they might hold uh, which are negative that they would be called out on that whereas once upon a time people might have sniggered and you know thought to themselves gosh I didn't really like that but not said anything um, so I think you know I think things are changing I think people realize that if they do have those kind of views they need to they need to leave them at the door uh, and hopefully some people have had their views changed um, you know I I certainly you know some people that um, you know um, uh, said unthinking um, homophobic things in the past um, have now become great champions and allies of the LGBT community. So, you know, I think people's views have changed, and I think that's uh, you know that's um, that's very positive. We need to what we need to do now, though, is attract a lot more LGBT talent into our industry. It's not something which I think if you're a young LGBT person, you think of the insurance industry as somewhere where you naturally want to come and work. Um, we need to change that. We need to make that more attractive. We need to make um, the fact that we're that we're open and welcoming of people from different backgrounds much more public. Um, but I, you know, I think um, through I'd like to think through Dive In and other initiatives um, of organisations like Link, uh, that great progress has been made. So there's a problem though, isn't there, Jason? That some people who who are listening to this might think that we perhaps take diversity targets too far and think that it's it's positive discrimination, that we might give a, a job to a woman or a black man or a gay man that actually a, a white male candidate might be better qualified for. Um, how do you respond to that sort of attitude? Look, I, I think there are plenty of um, straight white middle-aged men uh, who are getting very senior positions. You only have to look at announcements made. Um, I think for many years, uh, for various reasons, you know, people from, um, you know, one of those backgrounds you mentioned found it very difficult to get into senior roles. But also what I think it does to try and for firms to consciously try and ensure that they're more diverse is that is that they're rewarded by having a more diverse range of thought. Uh, and particularly also our clients. Our clients are looking for us to be uh, to, to come from more diverse backgrounds that reflect their own values um, and the, the own make, makeup of their organizations. You know, I've heard several instances of where uh, companies have sent uh, a very not diverse range of people to meet with prospective clients, um, only to be rejected by saying, clearly, you don't reflect the values of our organization and we want to work with companies that do. Um, so I think increasingly our clients expect us to be more diverse. Uh, I think we're rewarded. There's any number of studies um, most recently, McKinsey brought out a report last year um, that show that diverse companies are more financially successful. So um, uh, I think it's a business imperative that actually we look to that we look to try and encourage um, uh, 
more talent to come into this industry. I think the biggest problem is not that we're not that we're going to um, promote someone who's less qualified than someone else. I think it's attracting those people in the first place. It's keeping women who, in the middle of their careers, have children and want to come back and resume uh, resume their career trajectory. You know, do we have policies in place to make sure that that is possible? Uh, you know, there are all sorts of things that firms that, that firms can do. I, I don't think it's a question really of uh, promoting someone who's less qualified than someone else. I mean, certainly the, the bulk of our audience are insurance brokers. And I imagine some of them, you know, it's, if they're on sort of a smaller high street level, let's say they have, you know, five to 10 people uh, on staff, they might listen to this and think, well, that's all well and good for the, the Zurichs or the Chubbs or the Marshes of this world. But, you know, here I am with my business, my net income is growing year on year. I happen to have an all male, all straight, all white team. Um, why, when a job becomes available, should I think about changing what already works just fine? Well, I think it's, you know, for, for firms like that, it's to think, um, of, you know, where are they looking for talent in the first place? You know, some of them will have junior people that come on that they that they hope to train. Where are they looking for that talent? Um, you know, are they, are they talking to their local school? You know, if you're in your local community and you, you know, an insurance broker on the high street will quite often be a pillar of the local business community in touch with a lot of the local businesses. Are they going to talk to local schools to encourage uh, to encourage young people who perhaps hadn't thought about a career in insurance um, to come in and uh, to, to come in and, and look at that as a potential option? Um, you know, I think everyone can can be an agent of of encouraging new and different talent into the industry. Um, you know, I'll give you a great example of that. So, yeah, sure, I work for Marsh, and we're able to to do things as a large firm that smaller ones can't, but. You know, an example of just by engaging with young people, how you can change their mind. So we run a summer internship, um, which takes people from uh, non-traditional um, city backgrounds um, in East London, um, predominantly um, uh, people just about to leave school, um, you know, to give them an experience of what it's like to work in the city. And typically um, none of those people will have known anyone who's had uh, a job in the city um, almost all of them will be from a BAME background. Um, and when we first ran the, uh, the course, I, I asked to have one of these uh, uh, interns come and work in the marketing and communications team. And uh, when, uh, and so, uh, when Antonia uh, came in and I asked her what she wanted to do at university, she said media studies. And you know, I tried very hard not to, um, uh, not to be too disparaging about that. But uh, I said, okay, well... Um, Antonio, I, I hope uh, you know. I hope you'll be able to learn something of of what it's like, and you know, perhaps think about um, uh, you know, sort of other options for your career. And anyway, we I made sure she had a you know great exposure, saw what we were doing, you know, trying to promote some of the ideas around risk uh, that we were talking about externally with clients, but also to our colleagues as well. And at the end of her um, at the end of her couple of months with us, she. Um, she came into my office and said, Jason, uh, I've had a fantastic time. Um, I've decided I'm going to change my, um, my university course from media studies to, uh, to marketing. Uh, you know, really grateful. You know, you've shown me so much of, of what's possible. Uh, and I said, fantastic. And, um, and off she went. And a couple of weeks later, she phoned me up and said, Jason, look, I, I hope you're not going to be too disappointed. I, I've, um, I've changed my mind again about my university course. 
uh, I'm not going to do marketing after all. I, my heart slightly sank. And, and she said, instead, I'm going to do economics. Um, and so LinkedIn told me uh, a few weeks ago that um, uh, Antonia had, in fact, graduated in economics and was now working uh, on the graduate scheme for, um, for a, a, a sort of large insurance organization. Um, and I thought, wow, how fantastic, you know, from a brief taster of life in, of life in the city, you know, she's completely turned her career ideas around and, you know, that's just so gratifying. So, you know, a broker on the high street, um, there's lots that they can do, you know, they'll have unbelievable context, go and talk to your local schools, go and, um, tell them what it's like to work in, to work in insurance. Um, you know, these high street brokers will be having uh, a particularly, you know, tough time with their clients um, talking about COVID-19 and what it means for them. Um, go and talk about some of that experience. You know, that's incredibly interesting. You know, I one of the things, there was an article that came out recently in one of the newspapers that uh, um, had a survey of what, of what children wanted to do when they grow up. And it showed that in the UK and I think the US, um, that the, the most popular uh, career option was becoming a, a YouTube blogger, um, uh, you know, and there was of course the usual harumphing about you know, oh my gosh, what a wasted generation. And but what what I took from that is that actually what they want to do is to communicate that you know we have a whole generation of young people who are learning to communicate, um, come up with ideas, be very inventive. And I took that as actually something very positive. You know, how can we harness that? Uh, that ability to, you know, that willingness to be um, creative, to be open to new ideas, um, and to, you know, turn that into an advantage for our industry. So the more young people with a creative mind that we can bring in, um, I think the better. And I think, you know, frankly, a high street broker could also uh, really take advantage and benefit from, from having someone like that. Well, just changing pace for a minute. I mean, you're not a YouTube blogger, but you do have a big passion in music. Is that right? Uh, yes. So when I'm when I'm uh, on the rare occasions when I'm I'm not sort of handling um, emails from around the world, uh, I've always had a big interest in particularly in classical music um, ever since my my school days and playing in the school orchestra. Um, and so, um, it particularly serendipitous that um, my other half, who um, we've been together seventeen years, um, is a concert pianist. Um, uh, and he, a few years ago, um, five years ago, he set up the London Piano Festival and, and sort of asked me to chair it. Um, and, and so that's gone from success to success. So it's sort of grown in parallel with the Dive-In Festival and uh, um, it's had several concerts taken on um, BBC Radio 3, um, uh, you know, and, and also commissioned a lot, of, uh, a lot of new works and had performers from all over the world as well. And, you know, a great response from, from audiences um, in, in London. Um, but on the more traditional side, I'm also a trustee of the Friends of Cathedral Music, uh, which sort of, which self, um, serves to help uh, cathedral uh, choirs uh, and, and, and organists um, uh, with, you know, help them out financially and, and with advice uh, to, to promote a greater excellence in that area and something that the UK is particularly strong in. So it's, um, which is a fantastic organisation to be involved in. Do you play yourself? I, I used to play clarinet um, many years ago. It's uh, my clarinet is at least now gathering dust in a cupboard in in London rather than in Sydney. Um, but uh, uh, it, it, it comes up very very rarely. But I, I I'm very much an avid concert goer. 
it's 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 been a great discussion, Jason, and you know I think uh, you've more than fulfilled the goal uh, of of being our first guest on IB Talk. Um, but you know, I just for the sake of all, all of our listeners, somebody might want to to reach out to you perhaps on the back of this podcast. Uh, how could they get in touch uh, through LinkedIn, for example? Uh, through LinkedIn, my Twitter handle is at Jason Groves. Um, uh, yep, yeah, I'm fr- through either of those. That they can feel free to to get in touch. Uh, be great to hear. That's wonderful. Uh, Thank you very much for your time, Jason. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of Insurance Business, I'm Paul Lucas. This is IB Talk, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of IB Talk. Follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts for the latest episodes.